Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today we are interviewing author Lisa Renee Jones. She's going to tell us about her self-publishing experience and her experience marketing and promoting books in a marketplace that changes pretty much on the hour. We also talk about where the market may go and what big trends in romance may be coming in the next year or two. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, and I'll have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And a note from our sponsor. This podcast was brought to you by Signet Eclipse, publisher of Joe Davis's Hot Pursuit, the hot new novel in the Sugarland Blue Romantic Suspense series. I will have more information at the end of the podcast about this book and the music and anything else you need to know about. And for now, I hope you enjoy the interview. On with the podcast. All right. Well, Lisa, I was the one that recommended that we interview you. I have read you for quite a while, and I was thinking about the interview last night. Um, did you get your start writing categories, or did you write before Harlequin? I actually did a book for Five Star when they were trying to get into romance, and that was my first book. And then, um, and then I got um, thrown into categories, and they kind of consumed my career for a while, which is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I, I think that really delayed my career in a lot of ways. Although I will say I grew as a writer a lot, and I learned a lot from the editors there, so I'm really thankful for that time from that standpoint. One of the reasons that I uh, suggested that you'd be a good interviewee is because you've had such a varying career and you've been in it for so long. And I feel like you really look at writing as a business. You come from a business background. You've owned your own business. And I think you're, I've been watching you. Um, and I, <clears throat> the creepy. It's not in the creepy <laughs> sense. She's not watching you in the creepy sense, I promise. <laughs> well, it could be creepy. I've been, you know, I, I, I watch your social media interactions and so forth. And I'm just, I felt like you were one of the authors that really took advantage of kind of the new readers that Fifty Shades brought to the romance genre and then kind of capitalized on that. So I thought maybe you could share some of your observations of the um, reading world, the industry and that sort of thing and how it's changed and how you've adapted and what you think, the, how you think readers have changed if they have at all or whether you're just finding new audiences. So why don't you tell us a little about how you got started writing? You said you started writing with Five Star, which is no longer in business. So was that, I think the backlist was even bought by Amazon, was it? You know, I don't know. I got out such a long time ago and got my rights back so long ago that I'm not sure. But at the time that I got in with them, um, I I did what I did in the staffing business um, because I was in the staffing industry for 11 years. And that was I wanted to be able to know as much as I could possibly know because I felt like that gave me an advantage. And so the first thing I did when I started getting the itch to write was um, – I went to a convention or multiple conventions and took every class I could possibly take because I thought if I'm going to do this, I've got to understand how it all works, not just how to write a book, but how the business aspect of it works. And so I entered a Romantic Times writing contest and um, was fortunate enough to win that. And when I did, I ended up getting my manuscript submitted and Five Star bought it. And at the time they had... Um, an editor whose name escapes me now, but he um, 
wanted to put them on the map and turn this into turn them into this romance megastar. And it was exciting at the time, but he ended up not being able to get them to listen to him, and he left and. Thus, we see what happened, right? So I, you know, in the meantime, I was still, um, I wasn't agented. I was pounding um, the pavement trying to figure out how to get an agent, how to get things right. And then, you know, I got an agent and then that led to um, uh, to the category stuff. But even with an agent, you know, I had a couple agent offers when I did get an agent and I went with the one that made me cry instead of the one that told me I was already terrific because I knew I wasn't already terrific. I, I wanted to be terrific, though. I, in hindsight, I'm not sure. I, I mean, it was a good decision. Only having an agent that makes you cry isn't a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think that was her fault. I think it was because I've been used to being successful in the staffing industry, and I felt less than successful because I felt like I didn't know everything and I wasn't the best I could be yet. So I think it was more my issue than her issue at the time. What, how has the, the agent relationship changed for you? Because one of uh, some of your more successful series seem to be self-published. You know, I, my agent story goes like this. Um, I had numerous agents and I had some pretty bad agent experiences. I mean, I kind of learned that you know, the thing about agents that a lot of authors agent, want an agent, want an agent, we see that as some sort of point of success. When the reality is, more so than now, so than ever, that's not the case. But even in the past, it wasn't. Because you have an agent that sets your, your manuscript to the side or, you know, is more focused on something else, this does not make you successful. It's how well you're selling books and, you know, how your career is framing the way that you want it to be framed. And, what, and, and a good agent helps you do that. Um, and I found that agents are much like sales people from my business career in that they get residual commissions. And um, if they are a big name agent, sometimes those agents have already gotten to the point of they're making lots of money. If they happen to make a sale, great. If they don't, great. And um, and that can be an issue. And so I tell authors, one of the hard things I learned was look for you know, have those agents actually sold the books that they brought, uh, that the, you think that they sold. A lot of times they inherited the authors and they're just negotiating their, their already successful careers. Um, but anyway, I got off track. You asked me, how has it changed? Um, whenever I got into self-publishing, it changed my career. I went from making school teacher pay um, for a year after walking away from a six-figure corporate career and wondering what the heck was I thinking to making as much in a month that I had been making in a year. I mean, totally life-changing. So I credit self-publishing for giving me confidence. And I um, had been going to write If I Were You for a long period of time. I'd started on it and stopped. And it just, I think it was, you know, kind of a fate timing thing. And um, I just, I when I did finish writing it, I'm like, this is the best I've ever been. And if this isn't good enough, then I'm not good enough. Even though I'd had that success with self-publishing, I just, I still felt like I wasn't where I wanted to be in this book. It felt like it was the thing that was going to take me there. And I decided, because, I, I mean, I had to have confidence in that. Even though I'm one of those stories where I got beat down by the industry many, many times, and I had a lot of tears and almost quit a million times. So I said, I'm going to take this to my agent at the time, and she said that it wouldn't sell anywhere. And she, I said, I don't believe that. 
So I took it to some editors myself, and I had an editor offer me um, at one of the New York houses $10,000 for two books. And I can remember that surreal moment where I, not only did I go against what my agent, who's always been kind of like a god in my eyes, said to do, I'm going to turn down this New York deal because I know I can make more self-publishing. And so I did. Is that sort of the thing where you know intellectually this is a good idea and then inside, like in the middle of your chest, you're like, oh, crap. You know, yeah, I was scared. I think because you're taught that, or I had been taught in the process of being in publishing that the thing that made you successful was being New York published. I mean, that's what we all are convinced. I mean, there's a certain process, you know, you get an agent, you get a New York house, and it doesn't, and nowhere in that picture was you make money. Whereas the thing that I think a lot of authors don't realize, and I even forgot, and I came from the corporate world, and I dealt with a lot of CEOs and bigwigs, was that to corporate people, which publishers are, it's always about making money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are people within the organizations who love books, but it's always about making money. So if you think about it as an author of I'm going to make money. Well, if you're making money, they're making money. So it's a win-win situation for you. So I had to really change that mentality. And that's where I think self-publishing helped. It also reshaped agent relationships. And I still think a lot of new authors feel that way. They are the royalty. And we are just the peons or so who are so lucky to have them. Now the relationships have, have changed to where we need each other. And hopefully, I think it's a more positive, interactive relationship. That's how it's changed for me. What changes have you seen in readers? Do you feel like there's a new audience that you're finding? Do you feel like the existing readers have changed? Um, how are you finding your new readers? That sort of thing. Whenever I turned down that deal, I decided to find a new agent to do um, my foreign rights only. And she ended up being so excited about the series and took it to New York while I was still, you know, working my self-publishing plan. And it went into a bidding war and we sold it for a really large sum of money, whereas, you know, so of course I was like so thankful for self-publishing because it made me confident enough to turn down that $10,000 offer. Um, but, you know, I had decided that I was going to go into it with a business plan just like I would my business. I was going to, you know, have a way that I marketed it up to release day, that kind of thing. And, um, and I wanted an angle to market the books. And I had already had this, you know, series um, in the works for a long, long time before Fifty Shades and even Storage Wars existed because um, in my case, you know, it was inspired by this erotic journal found in a storage unit and we really found a journal. So I, you know, was able to say what's in the market right now and how can I make that work for me? And at the time that was Fifty Shades and the Storage Wars show had really taken off. And so how could I make those things kind of connect the dots for me and that's how that's what I used and so that did help me find new readers but then I had to say how do I get to those readers but you know so much led up to the point of me knowing how to do that and that was educating myself I got involved with um, you know the an indie loop um, 
several indie loops where authors were talking about what was working for them in self-publishing, what was not working. I constantly am looking for what are other authors saying worked, what is all of a sudden not working so that I know how to frame what I do next. And when I first started self-publishing, I made like $60 a month. I was like, okay, what am I doing wrong? I didn't go, oh, this won't work for me. I said, what am I doing wrong? And then the next thing I knew I was making the same amount I'd made in a whole year in a month. So, you know, a message to authors is that I think is don't give up and look at what you can do differently. When I hear people say, I don't have time to figure out how to market. Well, if you can take a book that you're going to make $60 a month on and turn it into thousands of dollars a month, how can you not have time is how I look at that. Um, and then, and certainly social media has changed so much since I got got involved in this. I mean, I think the key to social media is, is you can't just show up. You have to do just like anything else. You have to really get involved. And readers care if you actually, you know, want to be involved with them. And, and I actually enjoy it. I can't, you can't look at it as like it's this cumbersome, cumbersome thing. You have to look at it like this is a part of my career and I'm lucky to have this career. And without this, without my readers, I don't have my career. I have a question. So you mentioned you joined a lot of author loops where people talk about self-publishing. And one thing that I've noticed among the authors that I follow on social media who are self-published, there is an enormous sense of education and camaraderie. And an enormous amount of sharing. This is what works for me. This might work for you. Have you noticed that same thing? Or is it as competitive as authors competing for the same set of contracts in New York? Is the community different for you? Or do you think it's very similar? It's very different. And I think that's one of the shocking changes that um, I've said this um, actually on numerous occasions is that it's amazing how giving and helpful people are and also it used to kind of be like this elitist thing like these authors were the big wigs that barely speak to you and then you come together on these indie loops and all the walls have come down and everybody is talking and also I think it's a little humbling sometimes for people who um, thought that they had these spectacular careers and then they go into indie and they can't seem to be as successful as people who um, otherwise are and they go wow okay what does this say what could this mean about my future too so it's humbling I think it's been good for everyone in that way um, but then let's just face it the industry has changed so much there's a lot of people who are doing very very well in traditional publishing that aren't even doing as well as they were and I think uh, you know, when I first started out, I actually, one of the things I did to help supplement my income and to teach myself was I did author promotion. I ran this place called Author's Red Room, and I had usually about 30 authors at a time that I worked with. And the interesting thing for me was to see people who would get a little bit of success and become such divas and be nasty and mean to me. And sometimes there would be these really successful authors that weren't like that at all, who I, and, and, and then also to look years back and see how those people's careers have been shaped. And even how some authors who I know really struggled that are successful now tell everybody pretty much it happened overnight for them when I know differently. For me, I think tell people that you, you know, struggled so they know if they have their dream, they can, you know, go after it and they'll be okay too. They still have that chance. So it's funny to see that. But yeah, I think it's, changed people in all kinds of ways. I, I guess one of the questions that I would have, and I kind of alluded it to it in an email to you the other day, 
um, you obviously had some kind of platform from your category days. And maybe it wasn't very big, but you had some kind of name recognition. Do you... Are there many readers that you had then that have come over now to your new writing or is it an entirely different platform? Because you said that there are some traditionally published authors who are really successful who haven't seen that same type of success in their self-publishing endeavors. I did not find that they followed me over to other books at all. And and I have some theories about that. Um, and I think that um, a lot of the New York houses already knew that because they aren't very quick to pick up category authors. And it, I thought, you know, that that had a lot to do with they thought they could only write category romances, which I think is part of it. But um, it's also, even though I could sell 100,000 copies of one of my category novels, if I release another book, it doesn't mean I'm going to sell 100,000 copies because those readers are following the Harlequin brand. To them, the Harlequin brand is this, this, and this. And to Harlequin, that's been very important to them. They want readers to see that that's what they are going to give them, this, this, and this, no matter whose name is on the book. And they've conditioned readers to believe that for so long that they do believe that, even though it's like, oh, yay, because it's a category book and maybe it has Lisa Renee Jones on it and they know me, they're more likely to pick that category over the two other for that month, but they're still going to those category books only because that's what they want. I don't think it transfers at all. As far as a new platform, yeah, I mean, completely different platform. One, I changed, you know, what I was doing I, when I went into self-publishing. Instead of being told that I had to do A, B, and C, the great thing about self-publishing is that we could do, you know, C, D, and, you know, F, or we could do whatever we wanted to do, whatever felt right. And I think that one of the reasons that's resonated with readers is that not just Harlequin, but all the houses had this, this is romance. And the thing is, is that happily ever after for people is great. But I think that if you see a happily ever after that comes after some real life crap, real life stuff that I cannot tell you how many times I was told by editors, you can't put that in there. And but the indie authors put it in there and readers went, well, so I can go through this kind of crap and still get to happily ever after. And so happily ever after felt real to them. So that platform changed in the fact that, you know, for many of us, we could finally write the books that we wanted to write. And clearly that resonated with readers and New York found that out. What I have perceived is that I don't see a lot of I don't know if reader loyalty is the right thing, but readers seem to be liking one particular type of story. And even when the author that they've really enjoyed comes out with another type of story, they're not really eager to follow that author to those other places. I've seen that with indie authors. There was a really infamous blow up a while back by uh, an indie author by the name of Kendall Gray. She writes these uh, erotic rock star books. But she also writes an urban fantasy series, and she was lamenting that no one was reading her urban fantasy series, even though her porny uh, rock star books were selling like hotcakes. And she was very angry about it. And there's quite a few of these, especially new adult indie authors, who have a pretty extensive backlist of paranormal whatever. And those books just don't sell. They sell, but just not at the really high levels of the other books. Samantha Toll, for example, or Jessica Sorensen, even Jamie McGuire. These are authors who all had 
previous PNR releases, and the interest for those are, is very small. And Sylvia Day, for example, has had two releases from different houses. Uh, other than her Crossfire series. So she's had a paranormal release, which Avon has been marketing, I think, as a contemporary. I wonder how many returns they got on that one. And um, then a contemporary novella collection from Harlequin. And those books, while they sold well, they weren't to the level of her Crossfire series. So I'm wondering, because I always am interested in reader behavior, and I bet you are too, Lisa. What is it that the readers are looking for? It, to me, it's like they're not intrigued just by the writing, but the specific storyline. Because if it was just for the writing, wouldn't they go back and read everything else the author has written? One, um, everything cycles. Everything. I mean, in business, you learn what goes up must come down. And um, that's how I have found in the years that I've been in this business, genres are. Historical is hot. Paranormal is hot. If you look at paranormal right now and you take out of the picture Sylvia Day or Kindle uh, Gray or whatever, um, and you look at just the authors that are hot names in paranormal and, and you compare how many hot names in paranormal are selling as well as they were before, only a very small little group of people. Um, and um, even if they're doing okay, compared to what they were doing, not as well, because that genre cycled down. We just, we beat it down like we're doing new adult now. Everybody was writing urban fantasy. Everybody was writing YA urban fantasy. It was like, oh my God, I can't take it anymore. I'm so sick of these storylines. And they moved on. And I think we're starting to get there with new adult. I I mean, in my humble opinion, I'm going to say that I think new adults going to hit that wall very, very soon if it hasn't already. And um, so I think that that's one factor. Um, so even if you put in a big name author, it's like, I love these books. I'm sick of paranormal. The only ones that I really still want to follow right now are the series that were already going that I love, the J.R. Ward or the whatever it is, because I'm already attached to those characters. That's my thought on that. As far as like... Um, Harlequin and Cosmo did that whole thing. My thought on that is, is that it goes back to the cycles. Harlequin had a form. They say they don't have a formula, but Harlequin has a formula. Every book has certain things. And it doesn't matter what, you know, line you're in. It doesn't matter if it's single title. There's a certain feel to a Harlequin book. That feel is not the feel of the indie books. So just like, you know, everything cycles, Harlequin's brand that they work so hard for that means something to people does mean something to people. And it's not that something that's hot right now. So it doesn't matter whether you attach Cosmo to it or not, because Cosmo almost has that same feel as Harlequin anyway. They're a good match, but they're not a match for the market right now. So, I mean, if you release for Harlequin, maybe you do better than any other author that you know releases for them right now but that still doesn't mean that you're going to do as well as you might do otherwise so if you think that new adult is going to be i i think that you're right that the it's cyclical everything is cyclical i also think that digital and the kind of binge reading that people do accelerates the cycle so whereas new adult if it was published in a traditional publishing timeline without the huge amount that we have now might last longer. What do you think the next trend is? 
I think it's going to be romantic comedies, as much as I hate to say that because I don't write them. <laughs> but if you look, there's a couple series that are doing really well, and there's not a lot there. New Adult is so dark and gritty, and even Urban Fantasy and Paranormal, which was before that, very dark and gritty. People, I think, are going to radiate towards something lighter, but they still don't want to lose that kind of, you know, realism that's come with indie publishing. So I think those books that manage to bring some humor, but still keep that realism um, there is what's probably going to be next. So we'll see. <laughs> you can say Lisa said this, whatever, or say, ah, she was so wrong. <laughs> While we're talking, do you have any lottery numbers you could share with us? <laughs> All I can say is 11 my lucky number. <laughs> All right, we'll keep 11. going on that. You said a minute ago that things are cyclical, and I completely agree. And my theory is that what happens is a genre gets so big that the one name doesn't communicate it accurately anymore. So you have contemporary romance, and I could say contemporary and be talking about Debbie Maycomer, and you could say contemporary and be talking about your books, and those are not the same thing, and those are not the same readers. And I think that what happens in, in my sketchy theory, which I'm sure Jane is shaking her head, no, 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 you're wrong. This is what we do in our podcast. We disagree with each other most of the time. I think that the genre name gets so big that it needs to split and have a better name that describes what it is you're looking for. So New Adult, I think, was a reader-generated name in part to identify what it was specifically in the contemporary genre that people wanted to read. And I really hope you're right that romantic comedies are coming up because I think they're really good. They're they are really hard to write, though, so it'll be a little bit less a little bit less easy to to binge read because they're really hard to write well. Comedy is very difficult. You mentioned earlier about how you researched publishing and how you wanted to look at it from a business perspective. Um, I don't know how much you talk about your career prior to writing, and it's totally cool if you don't want to bring it up, but what are some of the things from your career that you have brought into your new career? What are some of the things from thinking as a business that you have applied? I know you mentioned you had a business plan. How do you develop a business plan as a self-published author? One great thing now is that I actually have an agent that I can sit down and go, okay, here's where I am, here's where I'm going, and what do I need to do right now to make those things happen? In the past, I did not have that. And I can say to authors that it is a joyous thing to have an agent that you can do that with and debate with and have healthy conversations with and try to have that if you can. I, I wish that for all um, authors. Coming from the business world, I mean, one of the main things I had that I think was important was knowing that I had to educate myself, knowing that the market changes. It was very frustrating when I first started, though, because I felt like nothing I knew or no matter how hard I educated myself would make a difference. And being a type A personality, ran a business, it's like, okay, if I you know, push, if I work harder, I can make it happen. And that just wasn't the case. So that's been a great thing about India is I can take everything and I can write it down and I can say, here's what's working. Here's what's not working. I can look at another author and say, she did really well. And I try and go back and backtrack and say, what did she do? What does it look like she did? Sometimes you can't figure it out. There doesn't seem to be anything. But sometimes you can say, here's a thing she did. But the other thing is, 
that, um, and I learned this in business um, the hard way, everything that works, everyone will copy and it won't work anymore. So what I did for If I Were You, I mean, I wrote out a plan, you know, and it included, you know, I'm going to have it on so many bookshelves at Goodreads. I'm going to have, you know, people talking about it on this many blogs. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And all those things worked really well. But again, you know, because I did it and a lot of people saw it work, um, then a lot of those things no longer work. Um, so I had, with each book, I have to look at it and say what's going to work for this book and what's going to work in the current marketplace. So always changing. We all, as authors, have to kind of go, here's what I think is the right plan for me. And sometimes it doesn't turn out to be the right plan. You know, so the ideal thing is you just quickly adjust and move on and find out what is. And so as I've watched what's happened with a lot of people, my biggest goal has been how do I either not repeat what they do that doesn't work and how do I repeat what they do that does work? And um, and again, it always comes back to you're, you're always guessing to some degree in every form of business. But like for me, I have my Inside Out series and it's being made into a TV show. So I thought, you know, the TV show is going to consume my career and my series and all people are going to think about is my series. I mean, sometimes I think of Hunger Games and I think I can't remember Suzanne Collins' name. And I go, oh my God, I'm so mad at myself as an author because she deserves for me to know her name. But that's how much that series became you know, its own identity. So my goal was to have another series that, you know, had its, that really helped me develop and grow and show that I had an identity outside of that series. So later no one would question that I could carry another series. So my goal was just, even though it meant writing like crazy seven days a week to create something else that was successful before that TV show takes over. So that's been my strategy. How will it work? I don't know, but that's the kind of thinking process that I'm trying to have. How do I frame my career for the future? You are so right about how one thing works, people will copy and it stops working because now it's like, how many box sets are there online now? There's like 20,000 nine book sets for a dollar and that's going to stop working. I've also noticed some people reporting that the things that worked really well in the past aren't working so so much. They work somewhat, but not to the degree that they had in the past, like the BookBub newsletter that people aren't reporting as many big, huge jolts of sales. Um, I'm not going to ask you what do you think will be the next thing to work because that would be completely disadvantageous to you. <laughs> I don't want to spoil your options. About free and book, but the thing that um, some people don't realize is that the free and the book bed, unfortunately, are really not about readers. It's about algorithms. Free worked because if you got to a certain point, it would trigger Amazon's algorithms, and therefore you would get higher sales for 30 days afterwards. Um, and so it worked. It was sweet. So it didn't matter if anyone ever read that book because it was all about the people who would read it when those algorithms were, were triggered. And then, of course, people, you know, loaded up their devices with free books that they never read and they didn't get read. So ultimately, the long term effects for an author's career weren't necessarily that huge. And then you saw a point where Amazon no longer liked that. That was clear because they changed where they featured free books and they told bloggers that if they had so many referrals from free books that they'd penalize them. Um, and, and there was a shift in the algorithms. You could tell because all of a sudden the free books 
even at the same download level, didn't trigger the same after effect. And my theory is that Amazon is so savvy and business smart um, that with BookBud, the same thing, they um, it would trigger the algorithms and you would see books stay up for enough time that they would hit a list even. Now I've been watching BookBud and you only see a handful of books that that happens to, which I haven't gotten to finish fully analyzing this, but I'm thinking that they probably, the ones that still get, you know, still stay up for days instead of drop like hotcakes, they've done something other than just BookBud to make that happen, a combo thing. Because when you do just a BookBud now, there's a lot of people who don't even break the top 100 to like two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning. You don't trigger the algorithms enough to stay up. There's no after effect and even getting your money back from BookBud won't happen. And why, um, going back to Amazon being savvy, I don't think that Amazon will let anyone but Amazon control their business or their top 100 list. You don't so, say. Yeah. <laughs> and they can control those algorithms. So when they see that happening, they're going to do something to change that. Now, the impact long-term for BookBud and why I think it's been so bad for authors is this. It still makes people, and I don't even think people are necessarily reading those 99-cent books. I think they're just like, oh my gosh, 99 cents. And I think for a while there, there was such a rush of, I have to get those books while they're cheap. Now it's just like, it's awesome, made that price point have other weird effects too. But um, now when an author releases a book, I think, and this is just my opinion, I think that um, when you release now, I think that they have adjusted the algorithm so that it is because they know what the book level is on average. So to control their top 100 list, I think that you have to sell more books to break onto the top 100 list in the first day that you release to get there. So I think the impact on authors across the board, regardless of who they release with, is that they're not going to make it to the top 100 unless they sell more books, which brings me to pre-orders, where now they're offering everybody this chance to do pre-orders, but I tried that, and I hadn't put together this whole book bud thing at the time, and it backfired on me, and I didn't do it for book two of my series, um, because... Even though the great thing about pre-orders is that the USA Today list um, counts them all on the um, first day of release or the week of release because I, I actually talked to USA Today and confirmed that because I was confused about it. All those books being spread out doesn't help you climb up the top 100 list. Um, and now more than ever with this BookBud stuff, you need every boost you can get on day one to get as much volume to climb up there where you're going to get recognized and keep the sales going. So I think that that's been the long-term effect of BookBud on authors and on publishers. Thing yeah. I've noticed with BookBub that does work with some promotion is that when they have a cookbook featured, it seems to do much better because it's a very, very limited list. And I mean, I realize fiction authors don't have any use for cookbooks, but when I notice a cookbook on BookBub and then promote it as on sale, especially if it's under $3, I'll start seeing it on their list, but it's never on a fiction list. It's always on the nonfiction cooking specialty list. So no one ever pays attention. Things that are not fiction, BookBub seems to do okay. But things that are fiction, it's flooded. Yeah. So what you need to do is write a cookbook is what I'm saying here. <laughs> well, since I can only microwave, it'll be a microwave book. <laughs> and you know, I think that would do really well. The author's God to microwaving. 
I, it's it, you got to release that in June or July because it will be the ultimate grad gift. There you go. <laughs> busy person's good. The busy person's guide to microwave cooking. Is Sarah telling you bestseller? And then we will expect proceeds, kind of like a finder's fee. Um, or in Hollywood, don't people get uh, paid for their ideas? Yeah, wow. we're going to need that when you make a lot of money off of the microwave cookbook. Yeah, we can make it a Food Network show. <laughs> so in 2014, we'll be seeing funny books from Lisa Renee Jones. No, unfortunately. You know what? And what's crazy is I'm the person who falls on her face and has all this stupid crap happening. I could write a book about my corporate days and all the crap that happened to me in airports. And it would be funny if I told somebody who had that sense of humor to write it. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I you'd think I would write funny because of that stuff, but I don't. But Elle Kennedy is my favorite funny writer. So I hope that her books then take off. I, I I hope so too for I mean I think and I always love to see authors who especially ones that I know have really struggled to see something great happen to them you know one of the things an agent said to me early on and I actually this agent um, I, I thanked her um, when I saw her at RWA she said to me that um, everybody's path is their own and you know, you have to focus on that and don't look at everybody else's career and don't think that it should be yours. It has helped me so many times. So many times I've said, this is my path and my path is how my path is supposed to be. And my career is how my career is supposed to be. And it helps you, I think, to rejoice with other people. And um, it's it's really sad when you let, and I've seen it happen. Lord knows I've experienced it um, on many levels where Authors, they're suddenly not friends or they, whatever, because their careers shift and change. And it's, it's, I mean, this is an emotional thing. I mean, you're trying to succeed in a really competitive area with something that feels very personal to you. And a lot of times it, you know, it, it affects people and, and it's sad, but I, I love seeing people succeed. And I don't mind helping when another author comes to me and says, I'm trying to be successful. Can you help me in any way, shape or form? I always take time to answer them. Many years ago, I wrote an email to Sherilyn Kenyon and I asked her for some advice and she wrote me a book back and I've never forgotten that, that in her busy career, she took the time to write me back and it meant something to me as a newbie author. And I try and remember that. Well, because this is a podcast for readers, what uh, book have you read that you think is a, uh under-recognized and, and readers, romance readers should be looking for it. I, you know, I, I'm so bad. I tend to read um, that things that are hot because I'm analyzing the market. Um, although, you know, I think that there's some authors that were really hot in the past that now that indie has become so big and a lot of new readers have um, become, and there are a lot of new readers, which is a fun thing, but they haven't discovered some of those old authors that maybe we as long-term readers know um, like the early Linda Howard books, like Mr. Perfect still makes me laugh so hard, even though it's very out, out of dated now. I mean, there would be like all kinds of lawsuits for the office stuff that happened. <clears throat> the HR, former HR part, part of me sees that. But, um, so I love those old Linda Howard and I just bought one of the early old Jane Ann Krentz's, um, that I hadn't read in years. And I'm like, oh my God, how did I forget she's such a great author? I mean, I think all this new stuff makes us forget some of those older great books. 
I agree. I think Linda Howard from in her early single titles, but or even her categories were fantastic. And I think that actually the type of story she writes, that kind of high drama, would totally appeal to these indie readers. And um, I love old Jane Ann Krantz, like Perfect Partners, The Wildest Hearts, um, uh, a, fa a, a Golden Chance, A Family Man. Those are awesome books. They are. And you know what? They all have those um, macho men, alpha guys that the indie readers are loving. And they don't realize that they're missing some of these awesome um, alpha guys. Those ladies, you know, were pioneers for writing those kind of men. What is yeah. coming up for you in 2014? Well, um, hopefully the TV show. I, I'm hoping to be able to talk more about that soon. It's been really exciting. I mean, I'm excited because it's cable. Um, because with cable, unlike um, regular TV where they cancel people sometimes before the show's barely aired, with cable, you get usually two seasons to make a go of it. So, and more books in that series, which I'm excited about. But then also I have this new indie series that I've released, um, The Secret Life of Amy Benson, that there'll be more in. So those are going to be my two main focuses that I have going on for this new year. Hey, do you like being a hybrid author? The digital book world came out and said that the people that are the best suited for this market and making the most money are hybrid authors. So you're a hybrid author. Do you feel like that's the best thing or would you rather just be one or the other? You know, when you're looking at the market and who you are and what you're doing within it and however, you know, people might see you, it's, um, you also have to keep in mind who are you. And yeah, when I tell people, don't write to the market, but write to the market. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, what do you have that works for you? How do you fit into the market? Um, don't try and, you know, it's like I'm not going to write a romantic comedy because that's not me. You know, figure out where you fit and just focus on it that way. And that's how I try and look at it. I think that is very smart advice. I think one of the things that trips people up, at least from my perspective, is the idea that I have to do everything. If I'm going to self-publish, I have to do everything and I have to do it all perfectly and I have to hit a list every time. And that's not that's not possible because there's a lot of indie indie authors right now. There's a ton of them. And people who are established authors are turning away from contracts and also going indie. So it, the, the market changes almost daily. I actually think, um, I always in the beginning of 2000, every year do my market predictions for the year. So one of my market predictions is I'm, I don't think it's going to happen in 2014, but I think in 2015, you'll see a lot of traditional authors um, flocking back to traditional publishing because I don't know if, I don't know what happens because I don't know a lot of them, but I've seen a lot of them try out the self-published market and not do very well and turn down big contracts and not do very well. And I think that you're going to see a retrenchment, at least from the established authors, um, trying to go back to traditional publishing. I'm not saying that the market's going to uh, shrink. I don't think it's going to shrink at all. But I do think that more and more authors are going to try to get back into traditional publishing because I think there's a flood away right now. But self-publishing is pretty hard. And not every author, I think, is really well suited for that. I think that you're right for a number of reasons. You know, what's unfortunate is a lot of people, whenever self-publishing was really hot, they didn't think about how the market changes. They also 
didn't think about don't put all your eggs in one basket. They didn't stay diverse. And one of my main goals from the beginning was that my career was going to stay in New York and Indy because I was, I hoped that I was smart enough to know that the craze for Indy could always end. I, I also always think what happens if Amazon thinks that they own us so much that they change it so that we all get a lower percentage of income and we put all of our eggs in that basket and all of a sudden we're not making the money that we were. So I thought, I'm not going to give that much power to anyone. I'm going to try and hold that power myself and stay diverse. So that was one of my main goals. And a lot of those authors that you're talking about flocking back because India isn't going as well right now for them or maybe it never did or maybe it did and it's not now because it changes in the market. Some of them really burned some bridges. Yes, with, with agents and editors. Yep. And the thing about agent and edit, agents and editors is most of them, even though this was new territory for them, most of them have been in the business world long enough to kind of know that things are going to cycle too. So they kind of sat back, I think, and said it's going to come back around to some degree. And that's why some of them didn't even jump on the indie bandwagon at all. They said it's going to come back. But, you know, publishing traditional takes forever to cycle. So we're talking about two years from now. And that's it for this week's podcast. This was a long one. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that joke right there. You can do what you want with it. I want to thank Lisa Renee Jones for all of her time and her wisdom. I learned a lot from listening to her, and I thought this was a really fascinating discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it too. The music that you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. Yes, I've used this a couple times this month, but I really like this because it's awesome. This is Three Ships by Deviations Project, and we're close enough to the holidays where three ships come sailing in, so let's let's why not enjoy it, right? This is from their Christmas album, A Dust Day Fiddles, which is probably one of the greatest holiday titles for an album. You can find out more about it in the entry that comes with the podcast. And now a word from our sponsor, Signet Eclipse, who are entirely made of excellent things. They ask that you check out Hot Pursuit, the latest in Joe Davis's romantic suspense series featuring sexy men in uniform. In Sugarland, Detective Taylor Kane is always ready with a quick wit and an even quicker smile. But he's about to meet a woman who will make him want to take his sweet time. Don't miss Hot Pursuit, available wherever books are sold. If you like the podcast, and I hope that you do, if you want to give us suggestions, a topic idea, you want to ask questions, you want to tell Jane that she's wrong, I like when you do that. Just kidding. You can tell me I'm wrong too. You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a message at our Google Voice mailbox, which is 1201371DBSA. Please don't forget to give your name and where you're calling from so we can work your message into an upcoming podcast. We will be continuing the podcast in the new year and I will do my best to keep up with the weekly schedule because this is really fun and I hope you enjoy it. I very much appreciate that you listen and that you email me and you make suggestions and you email us at the podcast email address. I love knowing that you're listening. Even if we have no stats, I know you're out there. And as always, Jane and I wish you many things. We wish you a happy holiday if you're celebrating at this time of year. And most of all, we wish you the very best of reading.